when I go to the beach, one of the things I enjoy is, is riding waves whatever way I can. If I have a surfboard, I like to ride on a surfboard. If I have a boogie board, I use a boogie board. If I have nothing, I'll just uh, body surf. I, I just enjoy that activity. But, you know, when you're at the beach, it, it reminds me of how finite I am. You, you get on the wave, and it may last, if it's a good one, 30 seconds. But at the most, it's just going to last a few seconds. And as you are landing on the beach, you look back, and you see the water being retracted back into the ocean. You realize that water is going to go toward another wave. It's going to go somewhere, sometime, make up that which forms another wave. And after that, you know, that's kind of how my life is and how halt of human life is, that when you look in the large scheme of things, it's just a brief amount of time. It's as a, as a wave that just comes, crashes on the beach, leaving a little impact, and then retracted back. Daniel Parker gave us a history of the world from the uh, written resources, including the Bible, and it's in the form of a pie chart we have in the office in the hallway. And uh, I look on this, this pie chart, and I try to... I try to figure out my lifespan on this history of the world. And, and at best, it's just a small, minuscule sliver. Uh, even if I could project on how long I live, it'd still be just a minuscule sliver. And you just realize that, man, life is just so brief. And the Bible uses various illustrations like a, a flower that fades, a, a, a bubble that pops, and that residue afterward is just like your life. I mean, it's visual images like that that just lets you know, wow, <laughs> what, what is the point of my life? It's, it's so quick. It's so fleeting. What do I do when there's a thing called death? And we're going to read this morning about Abraham as he's dying. And we're going to find out by looking at Abraham's life how he taps into something that's more than his life that lasts longer than him. It's kind of like we don't get fascinated with one single wave. We get fascinated with the entire ocean because we know that's the entirety of it all. And so, too, we are not to be so absorbed with just our life, but that which makes up our life and that will linger long, long past our life. In fact, as we read Genesis chapter 25, verse 1 through 18, we find that the main idea is that God's faithfulness outlasts Abraham. God's faithfulness outlasts Abraham. And Abraham taps into God's faithfulness, that which continues forever, and brings hope when he dies. How do you live with hope? And more importantly, how do you die with hope? Because every single one of us is going to have to die. So if we're going to do so, how do we do it well? How do we die with hope? Like Abraham does. We have to live with hope. A hope that is based in some certain things that are beyond your life. And we find that as we read this, that Abraham not only dies with hope, he passes on hope. In fact, it's one of the charges God gives to Abraham is that he's to teach those who come after him in the ways of the Lord. And we find that he passes the baton to Isaac and those who come after him. We, we realize how important that is this past summer in the, the Olympics. Uh, the men's team and women's team were disqualified in the Olympics in, in Beijing because they couldn't pass on the baton. It doesn't matter how fast you are, how well-suited you are for the race. If you can't pass the baton, you're disqualified. And so, too, how do we pass on our faith? It's all done in how we live and also how we die. And so we come to verse 
1 through 18, we sum up the life of Abraham. We're going to have some funny names again, good many of them, but there's a reason why these names are mentioned. You guys just bear with me as we read through this together, but you'll see the sense of this and that it testifies to God's faithfulness. Now, just in a way of background, those of you who may not have been with us, the book of Genesis is segmented by a literary device called Toledat. You'll find it uh, at, uh, well, the last one we ran across was chapter 11, verse 27. We'll see it again uh, as we read in chapter 12, or chapter 25, uh, as we look at verse 12. And it's that phrase, these are the generations of. Chapter 11, verse 27 says, these are the generations of Terah, Abraham's father, and it gives us the what happened to the, the descendants of Abraham, or to Terah, Abraham, and his brothers, Nahor and others. Uh, and now it comes again to verse 12, the generations of Ishmael. What this is telling us is that we're about to change gears. We're going in a different direction. So that's how it divides itself. You see it again uh, in verse 19 when it talks about the generations of Isaac. Okay? Now, there's some things I just need to remind you of as we read this together. God has given them, Abraham, precious promises. Let me just do a little review. You skipped a few pages back to chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The very first promises that we given to Abram at the time, God gives it to him. He says, verse 1, get out of the country of Ur, leave this land where, of Mesopotamia, your father's house, go to land. We know it as present-day Israel. Verse 2, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I'll bless them that bless you, and curse them that curse you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There will be worldwide global blessings that come from the family of Abraham. We believe that this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham, uh, who indeed becomes the channel which God can bless all of the nations. You see again in chapter 15, a few chapters later, in a vision, God speaks to Abraham and says, Fear not, for Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? Is my servant going to be the one by whom these blessings will come? And uh, God says, No, uh, that's not going to ha happen. Verse 4, Lord, word of the Lord came to him, Thou shalt be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Verse 5, you're going to see that the the ones that come from you will be as the stars of the earth. You will not be able to number them. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. And then we go again uh, to verse uh, chapter 17. Abraham is 99 years old. He knows that his descendants are going to come from him. He's wondering, is it going to come from another woman besides Sarah? Is it going to come from Hagar, perhaps? Uh, God speaks to him. He says, walk before me, be thou perfect. I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply thy exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Verse 5, he changes his name from Abram, from exalted father, to the father of many nations, meaning Abraham, uh, for I have father of many nations, have I made thee. And verse 6, I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come of thee. So we know that kings will come from his line. And then you skip a few verses over uh, to verse 15. God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, 
thou shalt call, not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. So it's going to be also through specifically Sarah that again kings will come and nations will come from this one called Sarah. But you also see in this chapter that God gives promises to Ishmael, the one who will come, chapter 17, verse 20, the one that comes from Hagar, verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard thee, behold, I have blessed him, I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. All these prophecies concerning Abraham and his descendants. You need to know that as we read chapter 25, verse 1 through 18, every funny name that we read is one aspect of God's promises being fulfilled here at the end. So in honor of this passage and what it is, let's stand as we read God's word, chapter 25, verse 1 through 18. Then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran and Jokshan and Midan and Midian and Ishbak and Shuaz. And Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Latushim and Luimimim. And the sons of Midian, Ephath, Ephur, and Hanak, and Abedah, and Eldeah, all these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. But unto the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived eastward until the east country. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, a hundred threescore and fifteen years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, and the field of Ephraim, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth, these are there was Abraham buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by the well of Laheroi. Now these are the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bare unto Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to the generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth and Kedar, and Abiel, and Mibsam, and Mishmat, and Duma, and Masa, and Hadar, and Kimai, Jetur, Nephish, and Kidamah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by the towns and by the castles, twelve princes according to the nations. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 130 and seven years, and he gave up the ghost and died, and was gathered unto his people. And they dwelt from Havilah unto Shur, that is before Egypt, as thou goest toward Assyria, and he died in the presence of all his brethren. You may be seated. As you read verse 1, you may be surprised, like, to read what Abraham does. After all, we find that his wife Sarah died. He's around 130, 135 years old. And here you have it again. He marries Keturah. Good gracious, man. And then it gets even more surprising. Verse 2. Good night. He had children. She bore him uh, these names here given and given to Keturah. I think, you know, he's 130-some years. How does this happen? I believe that what you have here is evidence of what God said when he said, I will bless you. 
and I will multiply you. There is evidently divine strength enabling him to be able to have children, even uh, up to uh, 175 is when he dies. And so for, the, for some of these children, they were with Abraham 30-some, 30 35 years before their father dies. And so you have, yet again, nations that come out of Abraham. These, uh, these names, the one that we read that's most popular, verse 4, the sons of Midian. Midian is the one that we hear of frequently, again, in the Bible. But all these are tribes that come out. Remember, Moses is writing this, and he's writing to the Israelite nations as he's leaving Egypt, going into the Promised Land, and they're coming across these peoples. And he's explaining to them, this is where they came from. This is why they exist. They exist because of God's promises, and they are traced back to Abraham like you do. And so when you see these Midianites out there, this is where they came from. And so their readers were able to have a greater sense and understand God's blessings and how it explains their society uh, and where they're at this day. Uh, many of these people do cause problems for the Israelites as, they, as time goes on. In fact, we see the Midianites again in Judges chapter 6. These are the ones who are raiding the Israelites when Gideon comes upon the scene and fights. He fights against the Midianites. And so you see these repeated uh, throughout. These, uh, these folks, the, the descendants of Keturah that come from Abraham, as well as the Ishmaelites, those who come from Ishmael, where they settled, most of it is in the northwestern section of the Arabian Peninsula. This is, as you and I know, where the Arabs come from. Many of the Arabs, not in how we define Arabs, we define Arabs today with the Egyptians and others. Uh, the Egyptians we know existed long before Ishmael did. But those that came from the Arabian Peninsula, including Muhammad, uh, who traces his line back to Ishmael, did come from this line. And so all these that uh, from the Arabian Peninsula and that uh, scattered from that point on, uh, we see them come, descendants of Abraham, through Keturah, through Ishmael, and later also uh, through Esau uh, as well. And so these take place. This story it, it kind of sums up Abraham's life. It continues on. In fact, we, when you do the chronology, you realize that, that Jacob comes on the scene. E, uh, Esau, his brother, comes on the scene. They were about 15 years old when Abraham dies. And so Isaac's life and and that of uh, Jacob and Esau is categorized and separated so that we can deal with it topically, though there is a merging that takes place. But as we keep on reading, we find something happens here in verse 5 and then verse 6. He has these other sons, but notice verse 5. Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. Why? God had made it clear that Isaac would be unique among his sons, that it would be through Isaac that his special divine blessings would occur. In fact, we find this given in Genesis 22, that he offers up or asks Abraham to offer up Isaac to him and say, kill him as a sacrifice. And we find that God was testing him and that, uh, that, we find that Abraham believed that, you know what, even if he is sacrificed, God's going to resurrect Isaac somehow, some way, because God's got purposes in Isaac. And so it was, Isaac was marked out as different, as separate from all his other sons, and that this would be the one that the primary divine blessings would occur. It was a priority with God to work with Isaac. And so consequently, Abraham reflects God's priorities and says, if God marks out Isaac as separate and different, I too will mark him out separate and different. And how does he do it? He gives all that he has to Isaac. All his authority, 
all his riches, all that belongs to him, goes to Isaac. He gives out gifts while he was still alive, giving it to the others to be a blessing to his sons, but all, everything else belongs to Isaac. And that's a great way to do it. You know, some, of it some of us, we think, well, you know, let's just let's try to use all that we, our money is and, and try to live as long as we can on the money that we've got, and hopefully we'll have enough. But there's some folks that like to give while they're still alive just to see how they deal with it. And I think that may be the, the better way. It may be more fun just to be able to give and watch how folks use what you give. And this seems to be what Abraham does at this point. But when it's all said and done, he consecrates everything. The word consecrate means to dedicate, gives. He gives all of his resources to that which is God's. Isaac being God's, belonging to him. You know, why do we do that? Why is that an important lesson? Because he realizes that life is just a brief, short amount of time. But God will continue on, and that his promises will continue on. His purposes will continue on. And so you learn to live in and give your life to that which will outlast you. That which will endure beyond your life. And that's exactly what Abraham does. He gives it to him. Now I'm going to just say that there are things that we consecrate. We give to different purposes. Uh, in fact, think about this, guys. If you were to marry and you were to marry a wife and say, you know what, I want this room to be yours. That might be a nice gesture. But I would beg to differ, and your wife might beg to differ, that would be an insufficient gesture. Okay, great. I've got a room. <laughs> but what happens when you start decorating your kitchen and your living room how you want? You know, you put your guns up, you put your trophies up, you put your flags up, whatever you got, you know. What is your, what is your wife going to do? Well, honey, that's, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Because that one room is not sufficient. And you say, well, well, sweetie, I gave you a room. Is that, you know, it's dedicated to your purpose. You can decorate it however way you want. I would beg to differ that. And marriage probably will not last. Because there's something fundamentally wrong. Your wife, by virtue of her position, by virtue of her role in your life, is asking for more than a room. Honey, the house. <laughs> the house is mine. We can talk about it. Maybe you can get a room. Maybe. But if I'm going to be your wife, you're going to have to give me leeway here. This whole house. Let me decorate. Let me operate it. I know how to do it. I want to do it. I've got a desire to do it. And after a while, guys, most of us have sense enough to understand, you know what? You're right. I don't want to do it anyway. And we give it all to her because of her position, because of her role, because we made a commitment that said, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, I do. All that I have belongs to you. God is such a one that because of who he is, it is not sufficient to give him a room, to give him a segment of your life. He is too great for things like that. In fact, he says, you know what? No man can serve two masters, for he will either love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money, saying that that may be one of the areas or one of the things by which we live for. 
He says, you cannot live and love, and love money and live and love for me too. I am a jealous God. These things cannot be. And money is not great enough for you to give all your life to it. Only God is. Only God is. And so when we realize that life is short, it's brief, it's passing, we've got to tap in to something that will outlive us. And what God says is he offers up himself. He says, will you tap into my kingdom? Will you tap into my purposes and to into who, who I am? Will what is important to me become important to you? And if he is Lord, if he is king, that will indeed happen in our life. And so then it's just a matter of being consistent. What will I give to God? What will be his? What belongs to him? And here's the thing. Some of you say, well, you know, Sunday is, is God's and everything else is mine. Or this part of the money is, is God's and everything else is, is mine. And, and we segment it such as that. And I mean, that's an incomplete view because everything belongs to God. But listen, when everything does belong to God, there will be moments and times where only something, only an aspect of your life will be dedicated to him. Such as marriage, when we, we do the same thing. If everything belongs to your wife, you would say, well, you know what? We all share everything. You know, it all works out. But I guarantee you, there's probably some things that are only for her. Like a cloth, or nothing. Or whatever it may be. There are some things that only belong to her. Why? Because it is a symbol, it is an expression that everything belongs to her. So too, with the Lord, there will be things in our life that only are given toward his purposes. It may be a portion of our income, it may be a portion of our time, it may be ability and resources, but it's the understanding and communicating that everything belongs to to him. And so we completely consecrate to that which is God's. I'm going to tell you that when it comes time to dying and everything is going to be taken away from us anyway, only that which you've given to God is the only thing that lasts. The Bible simply says that this world is passing and the desires thereof, but the man who does the will of God abides forever. Therefore, do not love this world because of that. Abraham understood that his life was passing, but there are things that are eternal. And so he wanted to make sure that he completely consecrated to that which is God. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, understanding that this was God's. He was God's. And it was going to be through him that God would continue to do his blessings and do his will. And then, we keep on reading verse 6. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Why did he do that? Because he did not want to mix that which belongs to God's. He understood that God would be doing something special through Isaac's line. Things would be great and blessed in other lines, but there was something unique about this. And he did not want to mix Isaac's lines with that of the sons of Keturah, with that with Ishmael. And even while Ishmael was a 15-year-old son, he loved his son. This was his only son for many years. He sent him away, and I'm sure his heart broke. Why did he willingly have his heart broke over his son being sent away? Because he consecrated, he set apart that which is God's and sent Ishmael away. It's what we mean by sanctification. We don't mix the purpose. We don't mix the use. You don't have a toothbrush that you mix with someone else's germs. You set it apart for you. You don't mix it. We do the same thing with many things in our life. That which we believe that does not mix well, we keep separate. We build walls to protect something, to keep something in or keep something out. I, I've got a 90-pound dog that's not well-trained and likes to slobber. I don't think he mixes well with our community. So what do I do? 
I build a fence. And I only let him mix with others when I'm there and having a good hand on things, making sure nothing bad happens. We have a a 10-month-old that likes to crawl, and any moment will be walking. We spend our life building barriers. We decided that a 10-month-old does not mix well with electricity, though the 10-month greatly desires to mix in with electricity. Pulling in every plug possible, we put little plastic barriers to protect and keep separate because we don't believe they mix in well. We don't think a 10-month-old crawler mixes in well with stairs. And so we try to keep him separate, and we build up barriers from these things. Why? Because things, some things should not mix. Let me just ask you, what walls are you putting up for the purposes of God in your life? What barriers are you placing? I'm going to tell you, you place barriers in your life to that which is important. There are things that are holy to you. You put up walls around those things that are holy to you. For instance, some of you guys may have said, you know what? Honey, children, this time a football game's coming on. I want to watch it. So I'm going to put up some barriers here. We're not doing anything else. You may do something, but don't ask me. I'm watching this game, or I'm watching this race, or whatever it may be. And we put up barriers to that which is important. Here's the real question. Every single one of you have barriers that you say, whatever happens, I'm going to be doing this, or this is what's going to be in our life. Here's the question I want to ask you. Is what's holy to you, holy to God? That's the question. Every single one of us have these things that we put up walls around. But will it last? When your last breath, last breath is drawn, will it matter at that point? A complete sanctification to that which is God. Abraham did that because he knew life was fleeting and God's faithfulness was forever. And so he put up barriers to those things that mattered. And he sent his sons away, the others away, away from Isaac and separated them to say, Isaac, you're special, you're unique, you're God's, and God's going to do some great things through you. I'm going to share a story from Chris and Lisa Best and her church family. I asked about this, uh, make sure it was okay. They, you know, like many of us, they have children involved in sports and they deal with the struggles of that because it's time consuming. I mean, it just demands a lot, a lot of the parents' time and the family time. And uh, their boys are pretty good in the sports and, and baseball. And one of the sons was requested, you know, to, to play on. Uh, another league, and, and, and if your children are any good, they get requested to do more things, and, and it, it feels good to you as a parent, thinking, all right, you know, my son's, yeah, or my daughter's doing well in these things, and, and when they are exalted, we're exalted, and so they get asked to be selected, or all-star things, and I'm like, wow, man, that's good. But they were, they were dealing with this because this all-star league that they were having to be put on, it was consistently games on Sunday, right when they were having a worship. And they decided earlier that that's a problem. And they built up a wall. And they had to tell the the folks, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. And they they ramped it up. (laughs) and said, well, you know what? If money is a problem, we're going to all chip in. So you don't even have to pay to be a part of this league. Just be, we want your son there. And they said, no. We're building a wall. There's a point and there's a time when we want to worship as a family. We want to be characterized by that. And we see this 
as endangering what we want to be characterized by. Let me ask you, what is it in your life that's dedicated to God, to the things of God? And again, I'm not telling you that this is God's and the rest is yours, but if everything belongs to God, there will be things, just like in your house, that will be only for God. What are those things? Can you put your finger on it? As you calendar your, your activities, you go through your resources, where have you said, God, this is yours? Maybe it should be a time in your day when you put up a wall and say, this is holy. This is a holy time where it's just me and God, and I'm going to be praying. I'm going to read reading the word. Maybe it's an activity that you do and say, God, this is your activity, and I want to give it to you. Maybe it's a service. Maybe it's a ministry where God's gifted you in some area. And say, this from now on is yours, Lord, and it will be wholly yours. Why do we do that? Because life is short and we want to live for the eternal. That's why. It's short. We live for the eternal. But notice as we keep on reading verse 8. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Let me contrast that with his grandson Jacob. Jacob, in describing his own life to Pharaoh, said in chapter 47, verse 9, Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. There is something different about Abraham's death, especially contrasted with Jacob's. The way it's said here is not perhaps the, the best way, the New American Standard uh, version has a great way of describing it. It says, full of years, instead of full of years, Abraham was dying satisfied with life. The, the, the meaning of the word is the idea of, you know, when you're really hungry, you come to a table and, you, and you're just eating away and you eat away and after a while it hits you. I probably shouldn't eat anymore or else I'm going to be really hurt. I'm going to hurt, you know. It's going to be pain. And so you, you, you step away and say, that was good. I'm full. I'm satisfied. That's the, the meaning behind what Abraham does when he dies. He kind of steps away and says, that was good, God. I'm full. I'm satisfied. What a great way to die. Isn't it a great way to die? And it really has nothing to do with the number of years, but what happens in those years that makes the difference. When Abraham realizes, you know, my life is about to end, and these things that I've experienced and the things that I do, they will no longer be, but I believe that there are things that are con going to continue on after me that God's going to keep on doing, and I have tapped in to these things that are eternal, and now I know that my life has made a difference. God, I'm satisfied. What a wonderful, tremendous way to die, to display the greatness of God as you die and say, I'm satisfied because you've lived. You've offered up your life to God and said, you know what, God, I've given this to you because I believe that you are the eternal God and that you're the creator of my life and you've given me great mercies. And because of these mercies, I give my life to you as a living sacrifice, holy and accessible to you, which is a reasonable spiritual act of worship to do. Take my life, take my heart, take my mind, take my will, as you have already sung to God in this worship service. You give it to God. And you keep it separate for him. You don't mix the purposes. And when life is over, you realize, 
God, I don't know what you're going to do with these things I've offered to you, but that's your business. All I know is I've offered it up to you. That was Jesus' plea. He says, you know what? Why don't you invest in heaven where thieves cannot break in, where moths cannot destroy, rust cannot corrupt, where stock markets cannot plunge, where inflation cannot take away, where houses cannot be devalued. Invest in heaven. What does that mean? Invest in the things that matter to God. Invest in his kingdom. Be consistent with that. Complete satisfaction. And he was gathered to his people. And then, verse 9, he was buried where? In the cave that he bought. The only piece of land in the God's promised land to Abraham that he bought. Only piece that he could say to his name. It belongs to him, though God had already said that all this would belong to him. He bought it and he buried his wife there. Why did he bury his wife there instead of what most people do and bury him back in his home? He said, my home's no longer where I came from. My home is right here. My home is where God said it would be. And to show that I believe that I'm going to bury my wife there. And you're going to bury me there. And he was buried there. It's a statement of faith of what God would do. Then Isaac dwelt Be'er Leheroi, the well that God sees. And then verse 12, we see how Ishmael was blessed. How so? Twelvefold way, just as he said would happen in chapter 17, verse 20. Why are all these names given? To tell us that God's word was true and God's blessings are continuing on. Abraham's dead now, but God's still working. And what he said he would do, God's faithful. And we're going to see from the, from the story from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it is a story of God's faithfulness to Abraham, to mankind, that he said would happen though Abraham's long dead. They're still happening. My wife uh, called me this past weekend and said, Jared, I need, you to, I need you to watch over the kids. Lowe's ha- is having triple coupon day. I understand the value of triple coupon day. And she had some stockpiled up, went through and made sure they're all, uh, you know, still good, not expired. And, and she, she raked up, you know. I just stayed home and watched the kids and thought it was good. It's a good thing. But, you know, here's the wonderful thing. It was just a limited time offer. The coupons were just for a little while. But here's the beautiful thing about God's faithfulness. Here's the beautiful thing about prayers. There is no expiration date on God's faithfulness and God's prayer. What's the big deal about that? I'll tell you what the big deal is. My granddad died about four years ago. He was one of my lifelong intercessors. Every day, grandma and granddad would get together, eat breakfast, have their devotions, and pray for every single one of their family members. And pray for them specifically for certain things to be accomplished for us to follow the will of God. And I knew that when Granddad died, that was the end of that. All of us, it hit us. My aunt came and talked to me and said, you know, I want to I pick off where Granddad left off. Jared, you just need to know I'm going to be praying for you every day. I'm not thrilled for me. But I just reminded her something. I said, you know, thank you. I need someone to pray for me. But you know, your Granddad died. His prayers do not die. God collects all those prayers, and they are still affected, and there are 30-some years of prayers of granddad praying for me that God is still faithful to answer those prayers. And I believe still that when blessings come and I see God's hand in my life, I, I contribute part of it to the, the prayers of my grandparents as they continue to pray, have prayed for me, and those prayers are still in effect. 
Why do they do not expire? Because God has not expired. And he will never expire. He is eternal in nature. And God's faithfulness will continue on. Friends, listen, you may be listening to this on a tape or you'll get this and you may be in a rest home somewhere or some of you may be thinking, I don't know how many years are left in me. Friends, you can do what a 20-year-old does not do. You can be more effective than a 20-year-old in eternity. And you can spend your time praying for those that God will work in people's lives when a 20-year-old has been so busy thinking they can do it on their own. And an 85-year can outdo a 20-year-old any day when they're in prayer. Trusting in the faithfulness of God. Tapping in to the eternal. Listen, I'm going to tell you, it matters. When life fades like a flower and we're just like a, a bubble that bursts in the air and that's all that our life is, it's as of the wave that recedes and seems to be that there's no impact made. Friends, if in that moment in time, you as that little flower can tap in into God's faithfulness and say, God, you know what? You see my life. It's just self-centered. It's selfish. I'm not worthy. I'm dirty. But God says, I don't care. I love you. You give yourself to me as dirty as you are. I want your soul. I want your heart. I want your mind. I want your all. Give it to me. And you take that little flower, your soul, your heart, and you give it to God. Say, God, this flower's not going to last long, but it's yours. And I believe that you can make something eternal out of the temporary. If he can make this world out of nothing, how much more can he make your life of lasting eternal value out of the temporal life that you are you give it to him and as time keeps ticking all that this life is about this world is about will fade away and nothing will last only what's done for Christ will last give your heart to him let's pray Father we thank you we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the descendant of Isaac, descendant of Abraham, that perfect one who came as God and man, living a beautiful, pure life, yet dying on the cross, not for his sins, but for my sin, for the sins of these here, paying the penalty for my self-centeredness, but for you, a holy and awesome God. Done so that you can extend forgiveness for those of us who humble ourselves, confess our sins, and proclaim you king. Lord, by your power, you can transform a brief, short life into a heart that beats for eternity. Lord, take my heart. Take my will my mind I give it as a living sacrifice to you and Lord may when my life comes to an end and my heart seeks its last that I can walk away step away from the table and my heart be full because I know that it can't be God do that work in me I can't do it on my own I pray this in your name